This is an ABC podcast. First, let's dig even deeper into UK politics. Ian Dunt, columnist with the I newspaper, and he's here with the latest from London. Ian, I am opposed to all forms of sport. I am, I loathe it, and mm. so I'm loath to raise the topic with you, but. The English women made their historic first appearance at a football World Cup final in Sydney over the weekend and neither the British PM or the relevant prince bothered to show. Yeah, I feel the same way as you about sports. I generally try to pretend that it doesn't exist because it doesn't interest me at all. But in this case, it was quite a kind of a telling political moment. Prince William is not just, you know, heir to the throne. He's also president of the Football Association. Uh, He did not bother to attend that match. It is just unthinkable that he would not have attended the men's England team at the World Cup final. I mean, it's beyond consideration. The same goes for Rishi Sunak, prime minister. He didn't bother to attend either. Now... In his case, I mean, there's this sort of myth in British politics, which stems from the last time that we won a World Cup in 1966, (laughs) Um, which is that, you know, if if the England team do well, then that helps the incumbent. It's not really true. In fact, you look at the world data, I mean, typically speaking, incumbents have a very short uh, and very small pole bump, really a few weeks, if their national team wins the whole of the World Cup. Any less than that doesn't make any difference at all. So it's really a very minor thing. However, It is believed by the political class. There is no way on God's earth that Rishi Sunak would not have been there if that was the men's team. And yet, in this case, he didn't bother to attend. Both of them put out these messages to the England team where they kept on talking about their daughters. I mean, Prince William was filmed with his daughter as he made the statement, good luck, girls, etc., etc. Rishi Sunak kept on going on about how much it had inspired his daughters. Keir Starmer, the Labour leader, went on about how much it inspired his daughters. It's this sort of sense almost as if there's no way of looking at sporting achievement by women except by reference to the home, except by going, oh, well done. Haven't you done well? Aren't you plucky? It's as if they're sort of on a village green or something. (laughs) So that has been the general way that the whole thing has been discussed. We've spoken about, uh, previously, about the uh, British government using those hulking barges to house asylum seekers in Britain. The uh, Conservative Party vice chairman a Lee Anderson, has taken the debate to a new low, has he not? Yeah, he has. You know, it's worth pointing out before I say what he said, which is, I mean, beyond the scales of dreadful, that he was sort of made vice chairman of the Tory party specifically to say this sort of stuff. I mean, he is an absolute imbecile, like the lowest, quite putting apart the sort of moral obscenity of the things that he says. He is, he is an absolute fool and has been recognised as a fool, just having no real meaningful cognitive ability at all, and was made vice chair of the Conservative Party by Rishi Sunak in order to try and channel some of that sort of dimwit populist thread that, that has actually been a, a fairly significant part of its electoral uh, victories until now. So bear that in mind when I say what he said, because Rishi Sunak knew he would say these kinds of things when he gave him that position. So asked about what was going on with the refugee situation, Lee Anderson said, uh, if they don't like barges, they should F off back to France. 
Then something really interesting happened. I mean, the, the idea that the vice chair of the Conservative Party, the most successful electoral party in the history of Western society, would be talking in this way is, you know, bad enough. Then something even worse happened, which is that the Justice Secretary, the Secretary of State for Justice in Great Britain and Northern Ireland, was asked about the quote. And instead of distancing himself, which anyone would have done in the past, I mean, Theresa May, atrocious as she was, reactionary nightmare that she was as Home Secretary and Prime Minister, would have distanced herself from those comments. Instead, we got something different. He said, Anderson's indignation, this is a quote, his indignation is well-placed. There is a lot of sense, in my respectful view, in what Lee says. So basically, a little bit posher, a little bit more restrained, but fundamentally saying it's a good thing. Then, when the Prime Minister's spokesman was asked about the quote, he said, the Justice Secretary was speaking on behalf of the government. That is the response. In other words, the official policy of the British government towards refugees is now F off back to France. That is not just what they wish to take place, but that is the emotional tenor and it is the cultural tenor and it is the intellectual tenor of what they're trying to put across in their messaging. As you can hear, beloved listeners, no darlings on this occasion, uh, Ian Dunt is being blunt. Now, yesterday we spoke with uh, Professor Upi about the uh, the plight of Albanian migrants in the UK and the, the rise of far-rise rhetoric. This is why we're talking about bad language. Has the Labour Party offered an alternative approach to illegal migration or is it just a, a race to the bottom ahead of uh, next year's election? They are offering an alternative approach. And by the way, I mean, I... You know, this isn't illegal migration, really. I mean, you know, you have a legal right under the Refugee Convention to claim asylum, to get to a country and claim asylum. The, the Conservatives, they love calling it illegal migration, illegal asylum seekers, illegal refugees. This illegal is all from the Australian playbook, Ian, as we've discussed in the past. Yeah. No, 100%. I mean, it's basically that John Howard sort of moment. Now we are we are now enacting it in full. Although I would point to you that actually the Australian system, as pernicious uh, as it was, is actually superior to what they're proposing. Because at least in the Australian case, it was you take the, the refugee, the asylum seeker, to a third country in order to process the claim. But the claim would still be for refugee status in Australia. When the British government talks about sending people to Rwanda, it is not to process their claims for, for, for Britain. It is if they succeed in their asylum claim in Rwanda, they would stay in Rwanda. It is at that point essentially a Rwandan asylum claim. So it's actually somehow they've managed to contrive a system that's even morally more pernicious than the one that we saw in Australia. So absolutely, look, they, they use the language of illegality. L Labour has been uh, an improvement so far. And it does have a policy, and it is not an inspiring policy, but it is the correct policy. The policy is we will process the asylum claims. I mean, essentially what has happened in Britain is that they just stopped processing the claims. It's true that the number of asylum seekers went up by about 160% year on year, but the number of claims processed was reduced by 400%. They simply stopped processing claims. And that's why they say, oh, we've got to put people on barges. We've got to put people in hotels. The system's creaking. The system is creaking because they stopped processing the claims. So the Labour case is, well, look, we are going to process the claims. And no one really likes it, whether they're anti-asylum seekers or whether they're pro-asylum seekers, because it's not very theatrical, it's not very dramatic, it doesn't sound new, but it is the thing that you are supposed to do. And I think it's to their credit that they are uh, sticking with it. While we're discussing human rights and indeed human wrongs in another punch well punch 
in the gut for humanity, the UK is looking into leaving the European Convention on Human Rights. Ian, why? <laughs> I, I just think, you know, as a country, we, we sort of, we feel quite confident that there are some uh, moral voids into which we have not yet fallen and we have to dive into them headfirst as quickly as possible. The Tories have been talking about getting rid of the Human Convention of Human Rights, uh, a bigger part in the European Convention of Human Rights for, I mean, over a decade now. David Cameron proposed it. He put it in the 2015 manifesto. Nothing came of it. The reason nothing comes of it is interesting. It's because it's stitched together with the Good Friday Agreement. The Good Friday Agreement is the agreement that basically ended the, the troubles in Northern Ireland. And in the Good Friday Agreement, it says that both countries, in other, uh, both parties, must remain members of the European Convention of Human Rights. So if you say you're going to leave that, what you're actually saying is we're going to take the, the peace in Northern Ireland and just strip up the treaty that it is based on. It is about as irresponsible a thing as it is possible to say, and therefore it is of absolutely no surprise that Conservatives, including our friend Lee Anderson, have been strongly proposing it. Why? because they think that it's under the European Convention of Human Rights that they'll probably be prevented from removing asylum seekers to Rwanda. So now it seems quite likely at this point that into next year's general election, the Tory manifesto promise will be to hold a referendum or even just to unilaterally remove people from the European Convention. Now, am I right in assuming or half remembering that Churchill, the sainted Winston, helped create this in 1950s? <laughs> yes, that's right. But then the funny thing about Churchill is, I mean, in a way, the, U the EU, the European Union, is one of its moments of birth is, you know, Churchill after the war saying, you know, the only way this works now is if we meld together France and Germany in their economic and their productive elements, particularly looking at steel, really, so that their economies are so bound together that it's not possible to have another European war. It's not possible to have another continental war. And that was a very good idea. It is the idea that the EU was based on and continues to be based on. And it is probably the most successful peace project of all time, because exactly as he, as he projected, it came to pass that countries that are bound together that tightly economically and in terms of their production and their industry really can't go to war together. There's no possible way of thinking in that manner. And yet this aspect of Churchill, I'm simplifying him a bit because he had all sorts of sort of wariness and suspicion of the continent, just as much as he did have a belief in its better nature. Nature. But this element of him, this half of his personality, has been almost completely jettisoned and censored and ignored by the Tory right that only likes to see the sort of British bulldog standing up against the Germans element of him and isn't prepared to see that more multilateralist element that was intent on securing peace in Europe and Britain's admittedly half, half distant but still meaningful contribution to it. How's the issue polling, Ian? I mean, at the moment, it's particularly on the EU, we have a massive majority for people who want to rejoin the EU. I mean, you're looking at sort of 64%. It goes up to 70 sometimes, huge numbers. On the European Convention, it's very hard to tell. I should point out, these are separate 
things. Obviously, I mean, we're outside of the EU. The European Convention comes under the Council of Europe, uh, which is a sort of separate entity that acts kind as a sort of entry room to the EU for countries that might join. So if you're Serbia, for instance, you really need to demonstrate to that council that you fit. You need to demonstrate you're upholding those kind of human rights before you go into the EU. We stayed in the council for the reasons outlined, mostly the Good Friday Agreement. You put it to the public now, and they're it's quite a mercurial sense. Most people want to stay, but you get a sense of a real, um, a real lightness to the support, as if a very effective campaign to get out would probably work. I mean, you've got to bear in mind, you know, there was a majority to stay in the EU before the Brexit vote, and that was relatively easily overturned. However, the big thing here, of course, the sort of elephant in the room is the Tories almost certainly won't be in a position to enact this referendum because they're almost certainly going to lose the general election next year. So whether any of this comes to pass is another matter entirely. Now, we're heading from the Thames up the Murray-Darling very shortly, but in brief, tell me about the kerfuffle over a couple of new uh, peerages handed out. Yes, desperate goings on in the House of Lords. The House of Lords is the second chamber. Um, It's completely unelected. It has no democratic standing whatsoever. And it is also one of the only effective Brits of the British Constitution. You can conclude from that what you will about the state of British democracy. Uh, Rishi Sunak uh, created two new peerages recently, one for Darren Mott uh, and another one for Kay Swinburne. And then instantly made them ministers in his government. Now, that's quite interesting because it sort of shows you how desperate he is, really. His only way of getting people to work for the government is just to make them a lord for the rest of their life and stuff them into the government. No one else is prepared to join. None of the existing lords, of which they're Tory lords, of which there are 269, nor anyone else is really prepared to get involved in the government because they look at it and think, well, you're about to lose. So why would I bother quitting my other job over here if it's just for sort of 12 months in in an animal that looks like it's dying on its back in the sun? (laughs) So now he's reduced really to just stuffing people into the House of Lords and paying them to support the government, which gives you a pretty good indication of where his fortunes lie. As you may suspect, listener, we've been talking to Ian Dunt, columnist for the iNewspaper and reporting live from London. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.